Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 37, the book of Acts, chapter 16. Today we're going to study Acts chapter 16, which is often called Paul's second missionary journey. Now before we do, I want to take a short time to sum up what we learned from Acts 15 because it's going to significantly affect the uh, how we see the taking of the gospel to the, to the Gentiles. Now Acts 15 revolved around the so-called Jerusalem Council which was a meeting of the leadership of the way in their headquarters, Jerusalem. The subject of the meeting was circumcision. As regards the many new Gentile believers, almost all of whom resided outside the Holy Land in the many provinces and nations that formed the far-flung Roman Empire. Now the question put before this council was this. Should Gentile followers of Messiah Yeshua be required to become Jews? That was the question. It was the act of circumcision of the foreskin for males that marked a person as abandoning their Gentile identity and instead taking on a new Jewish identity. This operation in the flesh was anything but an idealistic show of sympathy or solidarity with the Jewish people. A person who was circumcised literally, tangibly, legally became a Jew. No different than a Jew who was born as a Jew, who had always lived as a Jew. Ancient and modern Christian commentaries regularly discuss circumcision of Gentiles as Judaizing. And invariably the perspective is that what a Gentile believer is doing by being circumcised is that he is buying into a worthless Jewish ritual that represents being obedient to Jewish law. So essentially the claim is there's an unholy mixture being formed between Christianity and Judaism. Now I hope you can see by now that this was not the issue, meaning it also wasn't the intent for circumcising Gentiles. Rather, it was to convert these believing Gentiles to full-fledged Jews, or better, to full-fledged Jewish believers. Why did so many Jewish believers think that Gentile believers ought to be circumcised? First, was that it seemed self-evident to them that the Yeshua movement that that spawned the way was nothing more nor less than a new sect of Judaism. I mean, the founder of the movement was a Holy Land Jew, Jesus of Nazareth. The only thing that gave this particular sect of Judaism its particular identity that made it different from all the other sects of Judaism was their belief that Yeshua of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah. 
all other commonly practiced elements of Judaism that tended to be recognized regardless of which Jewish faction one might belong to, members of the way also practiced. We don't have to speculate if what I just told you is true. We can read of this in Acts chapter 21. There in verses 18 through 20 we would read, The next day Shaul and the rest of us went into Yaakov, that's Paul went into James, and all the leaders were present. And after greeting them, Paul described in detail each of the things God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts. And on hearing it, they praised God and they also said to him, You see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans and they're all zealots for the Torah. Now, when the term Torah is used in verse 20 in our complete Jewish Bibles, the Greek word is nomos. And it most literally is translated as law. It's usually written out in English Bibles as law. So the sense of the meaning here probably mostly points towards halakha. That indeed includes the law of Moses. Or as is more, as more popularly known, rabbinic law or Jewish law. The point is that the Jewish believers, especially those living in the Holy Lands, kept right on being Jewish, observing all the same customs, traditions, biblical laws of Moses, just like they always had. So the idea was that if a person wanted to be a part of this new sect of Judaism, of course they'd have to be Jewish. Thus a non-Jew must be circumcised in order to become a Jew. That was the thinking. Now the second reason that Jewish believers thought Gentiles ought to be circumcised was because Gentiles created ritual purity issues for Jews. Even though Peter learned in a direct revelation from the Lord that we read about back in Acts chapter 10 that God did not consider Gentiles as inherently unclean, nonetheless because Gentiles obviously didn't observe the Torah laws that defined proper ritual purity and then what to do if one became defiled, then the practical matter of Jews associating with believing Gentiles had to be dealt with. And since Gentile believers went to, or at least they wanted to, go to Jewish synagogues, then these Gentiles put the Jewish congregation members at risk of becoming ritually unclean. So the solution was painfully obvious. That's a pun, because the idea would then be to circumcise the adult believing Gentiles. Make them Jews. Problem solved. Yet Peter's vision and the Holy Spirit visibly falling upon the Gentile Cornelius and all his household made it clear that from God's perspective, Gentiles didn't need to be turned into Jews to worship Messiah Yeshua. Fine. But if not circumcision, then what else could be done to solve this ritual purity issue? The result was that four rules, all of them prohibitions, were to be immediately required for Gentile believers. They must not involve themselves with things sacrificed to idols, mainly the supplied to food. 
And they must not commit any sort of immoral sex sin. The Bible calls it fornication. And they must not strangle food animals to death. And they must observe the Torah laws concerning blood. Now in reality, each one of these four rules is a category of behaviors as defined in the law of Moses. Such that if Gentile believers scrupulously obeyed them, just as their Jewish counterparts were already doing, then they would be seen as ritually clean and be able to attend synagogue meetings and have table fellowship with Jewish believers. Now we learned that every one of these four rules was taken directly from the law of Moses and that all of them involve food in one way or another. We also learned that nothing contained in the decree that was issued by the Jerusalem Council said or implied the Gentiles had no other obligations than those four rules or that the law had been set aside for Gentile believers. Rather, as stated in Acts 15, for from the earliest times Moshe has had in every city those who proclaim him with his words being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. So the idea was that these four rules was the beginning point for Gentile believers. It was their entry exam. If they followed these four rules, then they could attend synagogues. And it was in synagogues where they were going to learn the law of Moses from the Jewish synagogue teachers and over time Gentiles would gain the knowledge and the discipline to know and obey more and more of the biblical law. So now a huge problem has been solved. Gentile believers can remain Gentiles at the same time they can attend Jewish synagogues if they followed the dictum of the Jerusalem Council. Which, by the way, was not so simple and easy as it appears on the surface to modern day Christians. But it was also great news for the Jewish believers who now didn't have to be concerned that they were going to be ritually defiled by these sincere but possibly unclean Gentiles. Now armed with this decision, Paul had the needed basis to begin his second missionary journey knowing he had official sanction to declare that Gentiles, for them there was no longer a requirement to be circumcised and thus become Jews in order to be saved by Yeshua or to even worship and fellowship at synagogues. But please note something else. There was no suggestion, there was no hint that if a Gentile wanted to be circumcised and become a Jew and worship Christ, that he shouldn't do it. It's a matter of personal choice. However, as a principle, from the aspect of standing with God and with salvation in His Son Yeshua, to be circumcised offered no additional benefit for a Gentile. So if a Gentile's motive for circumcision was to somehow achieve extra merit, then to be circumcised for that reason, well, that was wrong-minded. 
Now let's move on to Acts chapter 16. Now I want you to watch for a subtle but interesting twist in these passages. Now I told you way back in our introduction to Acts that we would eventually run into what scholars call the we, the W-E, we passages. That is, almost every paragraph in Acts is told from the perspective of the author reporting that a certain Bible character did thus and so. This was marked by saying they did this, he did this, she did that, and so on and so forth. But there are places when the author of Acts, who was Luke, says we, us, obviously including himself in the action. In other words, when Luke writes the book of Acts, mostly it's using the testimony of witnesses and is borrowing from source documents created by others. But there are a few times when Luke was actually present when certain things took place. So so we know, as here in Acts 16, that Luke was not only personally acquainted with Paul, but he actually accompanied Paul on some of his adventures. We find such an instance here in chapter 16. You'll notice it at verse 10. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1383. Acts chapter 16. We'll read it all. Follow with me, please. Shaul, Paul, came down to Derbe, went on to Lystra, where there lived a Talmud, a disciple named Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who had come to trust and a Greek father. Now all the brothers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and did a brief malah, circumcision, because of the Jews living in those areas. For they all knew that his father had been a Greek. And as they went on through the towns, they delivered to the people the decisions reached by the emissaries and the elders in Jerusalem for them to observe. And accordingly, the congregations were strengthened in the faith, increased in number day by day. And they traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia because they had been prevented by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, from speaking the message in the province of Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the spirit of Yeshua wouldn't let them. So after passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now there is a vision, a vision appeared to Shaul at night, and a man from Macedonia was standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. As soon as he had seen the vision, we lost no time getting ready to leave for Macedonia, for we concluded that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. 
Sailing from Troas, we made a straight run to Samothrace. The next day we went to Neapolis, and from there we went on to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that part of Macedonia. Now we spent a few days in this city. Then on Shabbat, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we understood a minyan met. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in fine purple cloth. She was already a God-fearer, and the Lord opened up her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And after she and the members of her household had been immersed, she gave us this invitation. If you consider me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she insisted until we went. Once, when we were going to the place where the Minyan gathered, we were met by a slave girl who had in her a snake spirit that enabled her to predict the future. Now she earned a lot of money for her owners by telling fortunes. This girl followed behind Shaul and the rest of us. She kept screaming, These men are servants of God Ha'elion. They're telling you how to be saved. And she kept this up day after day until Paul, greatly disturbed, turned and said to the girl, In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, I order you to come out of her. And the spirit did come out that very moment. But when her owner saw that what had come out was any further prospect of profit for them, they seized Paul and Selah and dragged them to the market square to face the authorities. And bringing them to the judges, they said, These men are causing a lot of trouble in our city since they're Jews. I mean, what they're doing is advocating customs that are against the law for us to accept or practice since we're Romans. Well, the mob joined in the attack against them. The judges tore their clothes off them and ordered that they be flogged. And after giving them a severe beating, they threw them in prison, charging the jailer to guard them securely. Upon receiving such an order, he threw them into the inner cell, clamped their feet securely between heavy blocks of wood. Well, around midnight... Shaul and Selah were praying, singing hymns to God while the other prisoners listened attentively. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake which shook the prison to its foundations. All the doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer awoke and when he saw the doors open he drew his sword. was about to kill himself for he assumed that the prisoners had escaped. But Shaul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! Well, calling for lights... The jailer ran in, he began to tremble, he fell down in front of Paul and Selah. Then leading them outside, he said, Men, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Trust in the Lord Yeshua and you will be saved, you and your household. Whereupon they told him and everyone in his household the message about the Lord. Then, even at that late hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed off their wounds. And without delay, he and all his people were immersed. And after that, he brought them up to his house and set food in front of them. And he and his entire household celebrated their having to, uh, coming to trust in God. Well, the next morning, the judges sent police officers with the order, Release these men. And the jailer told Shaul, The judges have sent word to release both of you, so come out, go on your way in peace. But Paul said to the officers, after flogging us in public, when we hadn't been convicted of any crime and are Roman citizens, they threw us in prison. Now they want to get rid of us secretly? Oh no, let them come and escort us out themselves. 
And the officers reported these words to the judges who became frightened when they heard that Paul and Silah were Roman citizens. They came and apologized to them. And then after escorting them out, requesting, requested them to leave the city. From the prison they went to Lydia's house and after seeing and encouraging the brothers, they departed. Verse 1 introduces Timothy, who will, 150 years later, have two Bible books named for him. Now Paul ventured apparently by himself from Antioch of Syria to Derbe and to Lystra. There he met up with Timothy. And by the way, since I read this from the complete Jewish Bible, older versions of the complete Jewish Bible had a misprint. They left out the word Derby. Newer editions have corrected it. The Bible text is not clear in which of Derby or Lystra that Timothy resided. Nor is it clear if Paul knew of Timothy before he left Antioch or only learned of him once he arrived in the Derby Lystra region. Now we learn very little about Timothy in Acts chapter 16 except that his mother was a Jewish believer and his father was a pagan Gentile. We don't know if Timothy's father was dead or alive because he plays no role in this story. And frankly, it's not even certain that his parents were married. However, we do know that Timothy was a disciple of Christ. Now the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1 tells us a little bit more information about him. His mother's name is Eunice. His grandmother is Lois. Both of them are believers. Now it's generally speculated that both of these women came to belief in Yeshua at the time of Paul's first missionary journey to Derby and Lystra. I agree, because that makes sense, because what else might they have had the opportunity to hear the gospel except from Paul? What's super important, not just for this story, but to the books of First and Second Timothy, is that Timothy's mother was a Jew. I'm going to show you why that's important. Verse 2 explains that the believing Jews in Lystra and in Iconium spoke glowingly about Timothy. So, Paul wanted Timothy to come with him on the remainder of his journey. But before that was confirmed, Paul insisted that Timothy get circumcised. And the passage says that he did it because of the Jews living in that era, area who knew that Timothy's father was a pagan Gentile, or as it says there, a Greek. So even after the vision of Peter with that cloth full of animals, and what with Cornelius being visibly anointed with the Holy Spirit, and with the recent decision of the Jerusalem Council to not require circumcision, a meeting that Paul attended, Paul nonetheless insisted, insisted that Timothy was circumcised. Why? Was this an act of hypocrisy on Paul's part? Many Bible commentaries actually say it was. Some early church fathers work hard to exonerate Paul by saying he did the wrong things for the right reasons. 
He did it for the sake of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so that sort of overrides any kind of wrong attitude or, or fleshly attempt to kind of smooth the pathway into the Jewish synagogues by having his Gentile companion circumcised and thus converting Timothy to a Jew. Let's hear what the early church father Chrysostom said in his Catina on the Acts of the Apostles. He says, Before blessed Paul, who himself had received circumcision, sent Timothy to teach the Jews, he first circumcised him in order that Timothy as a teacher might be more acceptable to his audience. So Paul actually engaged in circumcision in order to abolish it. So here we have an example of an early church father who could only find a way out of his self-imposed doctrinal dilemma that circumcision is inherently bad by saying that Paul engaged in it for the sole purpose of ridding Judaism and Christianity from it. Now the first issue we run into in trying to understand this issue with Timothy is really a basic one. But it is perhaps the crux of the matter. Was Timothy born a Gentile or a Jew? Now most Bible commentaries assume he's a Gentile. And of course this fact is especially difficult for them to deal with because here we have St. Paul demanding that this young Gentile man is circumcised before Paul will make him part of his missionary team. Something that seems to be in direct opposition to the decision of the Jerusalem Council. I'm here to tell you the solution is not so difficult. Timothy wasn't a Gentile. He was born a Jew. See, Jews determine if a child is Jewish according to the birth mother, not the birth father. I'll confess that this issue is controversial, especially when it comes to Gentile scholars who will debate on exactly when matrilineal descent became the Jewish custom. And no matter what the Jewish custom might be, just how is it that God determines whether a person is Jewish or not? Now we're, we'll not go too deeply into this. As several fine books have been written on the general subject of what's a Jew? Is it a race? Is it a religion? Is it a nationality? Is it a mindset? Is it an identity that a person can merely choose at their own will and maybe even change at another time? So we can easily get bogged down for a long time on this matter. Josephus and others of that era assume matrilineal descent, in other words, the mother's side, for determining the Jewishness of a child. The Mishnah Kiddushin and the Tosefta Kiddushin seem also to advocate for determination according to the mother. And then there is also this passage in the book of Ezra that heavily implies the same. In Ezra 10, 1 through 3, we read this. While Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrated before the house of God, a huge crowd of Israel's men, women, and children gathered around him, and the people were weeping bitterly. 
Shekhaniah, the son of Yechiel, one of the descendants of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have acted treacherously towards our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples of the land. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. We should make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives along with their children in obedience to the advice of Adonai and of those who tremble at the mitzvah, the commandment of our God. Let us act in accordance with the Torah. Clearly the case being reported here in Ezra is of Jewish men marrying Gentile foreign women and then producing children from these unions. The ruling is that Ezra understands that because these children were born to Gentile women, then they too must be sent away with their mothers. Why? Because despite having Jewish biological fathers, these, ch these children have Gentile biological mothers. This makes them Gentiles. So it works like this. The child of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father is a Jew. The child of a Gentile mother and a Jewish father is a Gentile. If a Gentile woman converts and becomes a Jew, as did Ruth, and she and her Jewish husband produce a child, that child's a Jew because the mother is a converted Jew. Now there's actually a little bit more to it than that, but we'll leave it with that. Now Dr. David Stern, in his Jewish New Commentary, adds this interesting tidbit. The importance of tracing Jewishness through the mother increased when Jewish life became disrupted and Jewish families were broken apart by conquerors and persecutors. The rabbis reasoned first that where Jewish women were being abused, it might be impossible to determine who the father was and whether he was Jewish. Second, that since a child's loyalties are often determined by the mother because she spends more time with him, a child raised by a Jewish mother and a Gentile father is more likely to be brought up loyal to Judaism than the child of a Jewish father and a Gentile mother who will not give him the early training that builds such devotion. I think, along with Dr. Stern, that it's highly likely that in our story, story that this diaspora Jewish woman, Eunice, thought little of the consequences of marrying a Gentile man. She and her mother, Lois, were fully assimilated into the Gentile Roman Empire, and so they probably weren't particularly observant Jews. Their family had lived in Gentile lands for centuries since the Babylonian exile. And so any connection they, they, that they may have had with their Jewishness was distant, even if acknowledged. Now we see this among Jews today, with perhaps most Jews, even in Israel, having little to no allegiance to their ancient Hebrew heritage. They'll marry anyone from any ethnicity or religion that they happen to fall in love with. In which religion, if any, that their children are raised isn't that important to them. But the more strict Jews in ancient times, as now, will only marry other Jews and insist 
that the entire family followed Judaism be taught its ways. Probably coming to belief in Yeshua, compliments of Paul, brought a true change of heart for Lois and for Eunice as they suddenly realized the great value of being Jewish, of, the, of, of having a Jewish heritage. What is it that Paul said about the privilege of being a Jew? In Romans 3 he says, Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, it was the Jews who were entrusted with the very words of God. But for some things in life, finally realizing the advantage of their Jewish heritage seemed a little late. After all, Timothy was the innocent product of an illicit marriage that certainly wouldn't have been sanctioned in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. Thus, even though Timothy was technically a Jew because his mother was a Jew, because he had a Gentile father, and it was the father who was responsible to see to it that he had a brit milah, a circumcision, then Timothy wasn't circumcised. Even though by Jewish law he should have been circumcised many years earlier on the eighth day after his birth. So the bottom line is this. Paul was not being hypocritical. He wasn't converting a Gentile to a Jew. Paul was validating Timothy's valuable birthright. Timothy was born a Jew. But he had not been circumcised according to the law of Moses. Paul felt that if Timothy was going to be an effective Jewish evangelist, he would have to be true to his Jewish heritage and to the law of Moses. Very likely, it was not Paul who personally performed this delicate operation. He would have sought him well. A person who specializes in doing circumcisions and man, it would have been especially needed on an adult. My take on this is not a new one. The, the early church father, Augustine, who lived at the same time, by the way, as Christostom, says this in a letter to another early church father, Jerome. As to Paul's circumcising of Timothy, performing a vow at Kentrea, an undertaking on the suggestion of James at Jerusalem to share the performance of these appointed rites with some who made a vow, it is manifest that Paul's design in these things was not to give others the impression that he thought that by these observances that salvation is given under the Christian dispensation. His intent was to prevent people from believing that he condemned as no better than heathen idolatrous worship those rites that God had appointed in the former dispensation as suitable to it and as shadows of things to come. For this is what James said to him, that the report had gone abroad concerning Paul that he taught people to forsake Moses. This would be by all means wrong for those who believed in Christ to forsake him who prophesied of Christ. For Christ said, if you'd believed Moses you would have believed me for he wrote of me. I'd have to say that the evidence is that at least some of our early church fathers based their devotion to God's word on the same basis that we as seed of Abraham do. That is, upon a Hebrew roots devotion. This is precisely what Paul was practicing when he insisted 
that Timothy was circumcised. Now, I want to also point out something that I hope is becoming obvious to you. What I've been teaching you about circumcision is more than an interesting but no longer relevant biblical principle. Satan, and by extension our own evil inclinations, somehow knows exactly where the underlying structure of our faith is the most vulnerable. These are the places in our understanding where if successfully attacked and conquered, it can do the most destruction to the body of Christ. The matter of circumcision is one of these vulnerabilities. Remember, biblically and in actuality, it is the covenant of Abraham that promises the Messiah. They are called the seed of Abraham. A Messiah who will bless all the people of all the families on earth. I want to repeat that. Jesus Christ derives from the promise contained in the covenant of Abraham. And the covenant of Abraham requires and is predicated upon circumcision. No circumcision, no membership in the covenant of Abraham. No membership in the covenant of Abraham, no salvation in Christ. And as I showed you in Lesson 34, circumcision of the foreskin is the outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart is the only path to repentance. Repentance is the gateway to salvation. No circumcision of the heart, no salvation. Paul laid that out eloquently in Romans chapter 2. And what has happened over the centuries? We have a church that's been enticed by Satan and by our leader's own evil inclinations to toss out the covenant of Abraham into the dustbin of history like a soiled diaper. And along with it, it is trashed circumcision that is the God-ordained sign of participation in the Abrahamic covenant. The rationale is that both things are just too Jewish for a Christian to suffer. May those who have ears to listen here. Verses 4 and 5 say that they went through the towns delivering the decree of the Jerusalem council. They is referring to Paul, Selah, and Timothy. Now let's remember that Selah was one of the two chosen emissaries to accompany Paul back from Jerusalem to Antioch to verify the contents of that letter, relieving Gentiles from having to become Jews in order to worship Christ. So no doubt, as the trio rode from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, it was Selah who was the celebrity. As a result of this decision that assured the Jews that Gentile believers wouldn't ritually defile them, and the same decisions assured the Gentiles they didn't have to become Jews to be ritually clean enough to attend synagogues, the Yeshua movement was strengthened and their numbers grew steadily. A man-made barrier had been removed. And the results were stunning. Well, as they continued on their travels, we're told that they traveled through the, re through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, Galatia is, of course, the namesake of the letter to the Galatians penned by Paul. 
But we are told that they went in this direction because the Holy Spirit prevented them from going to the province of Asia. And by the way, don't confuse this with the modern gigantic continent of Asia. That's not what's being talked about. Let me mention that although most Bibles say Phrygia and Galatia, this is an error. It was not two regions. Rather, it was a territory within a region. And it was known as Phrygia Galatica. It was here that Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Pisidian Antioch, all of these places that Paul went to were located. So it's no mystery why Paul journeyed throughout Phrygia Galatica. This was where he had been before and he had made many believers in several towns. So as was his custom, he was now going back to these same congregations to check on their progress. Now it's a curious statement to say that the Holy Spirit prevented him from going to Asia. For one reason, there's no explanation of what actually occurred that prevented the three from going. It's not uncommon among believers to this day to see our plans disrupted only to lay the cause at the feet of the Lord as the one who is the sovereign disruptor. That is, we see it as God's will that something happens or it doesn't happen. It may be something like that that Luke is speaking about. Or perhaps it is that during prayer there was an unction of the Spirit that moved among all the prayer partners such that they all agreed that for whatever reason Paul, Silla, and Timothy ought to alter their plans. In any case, they saw their inability to go to Asia as God's will and they didn't fight it. Well, they've been traveling westward. So now, with their plans changed, they turned northward. Now, Bithynia was a highly civilized, a much populated area uh, in northwest Asia Minor. It had many Roman cities, but also many Jewish settlements. The disciples kept going, but yet another divine stop sign was encountered. And this time, the verses tell us it came from the spirit of Yeshua. Again, it's difficult to understand just what this meant. We only come across the term spirit of Yeshua a couple of times in the New Testament. It may well be that in prayer the spirit that spoke to them actually identified himself as Yeshua. And considering that it was Paul who was leading the expedition, that could make a lot of sense. After all, he was the one who were on the road to Damascus before he was a believer. He got blinded by a bright light and confronted by Yeshua, who openly identified himself as such. So perhaps, either by name or by method or both, Paul thought it to be Yeshua who had blocked the way. Well, they decided to pass through Mysia, travel to Troas. Now, Alexandria Troas was a seaport town. It held the status of a Roman colony. So it had a Roman government there operating under Roman law. There, Paul had a vision, and this time it was not a warning to avoid going to a particular place. It was a command to go to an area Paul had apparently not included in his plans. 
He and his companions were to pass over now the Aegean Sea and on into Europe. Paul's ability to speak fluent Greek and his rather unusual standing as a Roman citizen, unusual for a Jew, was about to come in very handy. We're going to continue to follow Paul on his second missionary journey next time.